Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 46. We're going to be diving into Sherlock Holmes, the two films made by Guy Ritchie, starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows, two of my favorite Guy Ritchie films. I love Robert Downey Jr. in these films. Jude Law is great. Rachel McAdams. We have a bunch of great characters, some really great villains. Highly visual films, excellent directing from the legendary Guy Ritchie, who I think is an incredibly underrated director working today. One of the best, one of my favorites of all time. And I'm just really excited to finally, we haven't talked about him at all yet, so I'm pretty yeah. excited to do it. Even though it's the big budget films, we'll get to his his other films, his indie films later on sometime, but it's great to actually finally talk, to, talk about him. Exactly. This is one of my favorite franchises, and I hope they really do make the third film. Supposedly, they're going to be filming it next year, so we'll see what happens, but... These two I really adore, and I love the Sherlock character, and I think they did a really great uh, and unique take on the character and the stories, and they made it contemporary, but also setting it in a period piece, so I think they did an outstanding job with this. Yeah, I know they, they want to make the third one. I think the script's done, but Guy Ritchie's a pretty busy guy right now, so isn't Downey. He's not directing it. He's not going to direct the third no, one? No, Dexter Fletcher is going to direct it. He made uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman. Oh, well, Rocketman's really good, yeah. so, you know, I, Bohemian okay Rhapsody's very well directed. Yeah. Well, as long as someone makes it, I'm happy. It, really, all you need to happen is have Downey and Jude Law come back. That's really all you need. Yeah, you need exactly. Sherlock and Watson, and I'm sure it'll be a, a great film either way. This episode is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order for MoviePosters.com today. Again, RAIDERS15 to get 15% off. This episode is also brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from manscaped.com. If you like our podcast, the best thing you can do to help us is spread the word, subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, you can find us. Tell your movie friends about us. Leaving a five-star review is incredibly beneficial and helps us get seen by new people, especially the written ones. We love to see what you guys write and, and love about the show. It's It really touches our hearts. We also have a Patreon where you can support us monthly, where members get special perks like behind-the-scenes footage, sneak peeks at next episodes, personalized videos, and the top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast to be immortalized forever. As always, spoilers are abound. Sherlock Holmes, for me, is, has been a personal favorite fictional character of mine for years, and I'm sure that's not a unique opinion to have because it's probably the most popular uh, fictional character over the last uh, 120 years, probably. Yeah, no one's made uh, more adaptations of any character more than Sherlock. And I think... When we first started reading Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, stories and, and books, we were like teenagers. I think you got me into it. Like you got me into a lot of stuff except for hard drugs, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Not and, yet. And this, <laughs> and this character by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle first appeared in a publication in 1887. And obviously we all know Sherlock Holmes is a brilliant London-based detective, famous for his prowess of using logic and astute observation to solve cases. And he actually based his character off two people he knew in real life, and one of them was a professor he knew who had a very uh, in, uh, high intellect and 
was very skillful in observation. So he he drew from people in his life and created Sherlock. And I think Sherlock is easily one of the greatest fictional characters ever made. Uh, obviously, he's known around the world. They've sold they've sold how many, who knows how many copies of the books. And I am a huge fan of the of the novelizations and the short stories. I think there's around sixty short stories and there's three full length novels. And every one of them is a fun read. It's kind of like reading Harry Potter. They're always a good time to read. Uh, they're nostalgic, and a lot of them are pretty short. It's like if you want to thir- kill 30 minutes, read a Sherlock Holmes story, and, and you're done, and it's a great time. And no matter how many times you read them, they're always entertaining. And sometimes you f- you often forget how the stories go because they're so complicated. And I, it, I, I'm I rarely as entertained as I am reading one of these stories. Absolutely. And Doyle, he wrote four novels and 56 short four stories novels. featuring his creation of Sherlock Holmes and almost were all narrated by friend and biographer Dr. John Watson, who's also the fictional character in the story, obviously. Uh, with the exception that two are narrated by Holmes himself, and then one, two are written in the third person. And Doyle actually tried to kill Sherlock Holmes in 1893, but public outcry forced him to bring him back. And more actors have portrayed Sherlock Holmes than any other character. And by 1964, you were you were pretty close with the Bible. It came in uh, in terms of top selling worldwide sales. It was second to the Bible, but now obviously that's changed because the list is dominated by J.K. Rowling, Dan Brown, and E.L. James. Got, gotta love the Da Vinci Code, man. And those Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> somehow are pretty close to outselling the Bible. If you think about it, uh, Sherlock is probably the first ever superhero ever written because, no, he doesn't have any superpowers, but he has superhuman abilities in terms of he's he has a genius-level intellect and he has the most acute sense of observation that he uses at, in his detection. And um, he, he is a great impersonator, uh, master of disguise, and he has an incredible sense of smell. And he's just, he's very skilled in, in the forensic science field, which was still uh, very new back then. And if you would think about it, he is the superhero of the 20th century. Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with you. I think King Arthur was more of a superhero and he was much earlier than Sherlock. But in right. terms of like a good point. modern writing and modern world, yeah, he's probably like the original superhero archetype kind mm-hmm. of. And it's a character we're clearly not sick of. Because there obviously were dozens of adaptations in the 20th century, and even Christopher Plummer played the the detective in a in a film. Michael Caine did too. Yeah, Michael Caine, and there, actually Steven Spielberg tried to reboot it with Young Sherlock. So there there have been a lot of attempts over the years to try to bring it back. But Sherlock Guy Ritchie's franchise, starring Robert Downey Jr., is my favorite version of any of them. Then we also have BBC's Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch, obviously, Elementary with Johnny Lee Miller, Mr. Holmes with Ian McKellen, Enola Holmes, which stars Millie Bobby Brown with Henry Cavill as Sherlock. Even Will Ferrell and John C. Riley attempted to make an adaptation called Holmes and Watson, which I won't even watch. Even though I love Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, I'm not going to watch that. From what I've read of it, it's probably one of the worst movies ever made. The trailer just looked like hot garbage. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to watch that. There's actually even been a female Japanese version TV show in 2018 called Miss Holmes. So obviously, as you said earlier, this story, this character has just transcended all cultures over the last 120 years. And I think the reason for that is because it's such an interesting character because a lot of people aren't really aware of the dark um, qualities to Sherlock in terms of especially his his drug addiction. The guy, and throughout all the novels, and they touch on it in, in the new movies, they don't really do much of it in the older films but uh he he likes to take morphine he likes to take uh heroin he likes cocaine uh, opioids opioids so he he has a very dark uh quality to him that he tries to keep at bay but the reason why he uses drugs is because his mind is so chaotic and out of control when he doesn't have a case to solve 
he he kind of loses his grip on his sanity and and getting high on drugs helps him balance out and when he does have a case to solve his my his brain power is fully used for the case so then he can focus this episode of raiders of the lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at manscaped.com the leaders in men's below the waist grooming manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your comfort obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience manscaped has been awesome they've sent us pretty much every single thing on their website and you know what i love every single product they've sent us their lawnmower is the best buzzer clippers i've ever used in my life i've been using the store brand stuff forever and my god I don't know why I've been pulling hairs out my whole life with those things. Because you're a bonehead. I know I am a bonehead. This thing has a flashlight on it. It's waterproof. You can use it in the shower and just clog up that drain for your girlfriend <laughs> to find or your wife. <laughs> use coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. This is a necessary part of life, especially for us guys. And you know what? This is something guys will use. So definitely get this. For the holiday season, for the men in your life, your boyfriends, your friends, your husbands, your fiancés, your your father, your uncle, your cousins, every dude in your life would really seriously appreciate something from Manscaped. This is stuff we want, stuff we'll actually use, and I swear it would, it would blow their mind to get something from Manscaped. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Holiday season, get it done real quick. Yeah, that's why I really love Guy Ritchie's version of the character and the filmmakers and the writers who who took this new like reinvention, you can say, on Sherlock Holmes because a lot of people, they they see these Sherlock films, the new ones with Downey and Jude Law, and they see this rough, messy, like druggy guy, this bare-knuckle brawler. He's he's kind of just crazy in his, in his apartment doing who knows what, and it's a mess, and he's untidy. And a lot of people think they just made this eccentric character from like the the yeah. pristine version of Sherlock Holmes that we've seen the last 50 years and they just they Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I think they just did that for Hollywood, but really yeah. that's what Sherlock was like before mm -hmm. in the lore. John Watson cleans him up, basically makes him a respectable member of society. So Sherlock Holmes was like a bohemian sleeping on his floor, like chaotic and drug ridden. And like, really, it's Watson who makes him a part of society. Yeah, people are surprised. Um, they think that the new version is a little too gritty and a little too sensational. But there are instances and hints in the book. There aren't any actual fighting scenes, but he does mention a couple of times that 
he has been in underground boxing matches within London, so he has an extensive history of fighting, and he also has um, a specific uh, martial art that he uses. Um, Baritsu. Bar- Baritsu, and uh, they changed it up for this film um, to make it uh, Wung, Wung, Wing Chu. Wing Chu, which uh, Bruce Lee was famous for doing, and Downey been practicing yeah. since he's been practicing since 2004. That actually helped Downey get clean, um, learning that martial art. So it's a big part of his life, and it works for this character. It's a lot of fun to see. So Sherlock Holmes actually does have extensive experience with fighting, so it's not unusual for him to be in a fight like that and to be able to hold himself in a criminal fight because. He has an extensive history of it in the books. Yeah, so just to talk about it a little more, can he fight? Yes, does he do it in the books? Not often. He can if he has to. Um, in the books, they describe he practiced boxing, fencing, and stick fighting, and again, Baritsu. He also trained as a boxer, and there's a part in The Sign of Four, the story where Holmes encounters a character and says to him, I don't think you could have forgotten me. Don't you remember that amateur who fought three rounds with you at Allison's room the night of your benefit four years back? So he's saying that he just went three rounds bare-knuckle fighting, boxing with the amateur boxer. So again, Mm. like you just said, he actually has experience fighting. And obviously in the short story, he doesn't do it very often. In the books, doesn't do it very often. He only does it if he has to. But obviously, for the Hollywoodized film, they have to make it make it action packed because again, they're reinventing the character. Yeah, and they need to sell tickets. They need to make a lot of money. And my one of my favorite aspects to their adaptation in the Guy Ritchie films is they got rid of the hat, that pouchy hat with the two things all over the ears. Yeah, Cumberbatch wears it. Yeah, Sherlock. Cumberbatch wears it. That hat is never ever mentioned in the books or stories. Sherlock never once wore that hat in any of Doyle's writing. What happened was the illustrator who began making illustrations for the magazines that it came out and he just out of out of the blue just started putting the hat on Sherlock because he liked to wear one himself. And so people um, became, the, the hat became synonymous with the character and then whenever there was a film or theater adaptation or a television adaptation of the character, the actors always wore that hat. But in fact, in the books, he never wore that hat. And so in the films, he doesn't wear the hat. It showed that Guy Ritchie wanted to shake it up. He wanted to do something new with an adaptation of his character, and that was probably one of my favorite parts about it. That was actually one of the two stipulations that Guy Ritchie had when he wanted to take the job. He's like, I'm not making him wear the hat, and also I don't want to have the line, it's elementary, dear Watson, wherever that line is. However, yeah. That's said elementary. in every, yeah. every single uh, adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, they say that line. He's like, I'm cutting that, I'm cutting the hat. That's the only way I'll do this, which I love Guy Ritchie for because... Guy is one of my favorite directors. He's he's so unique and he's so underappreciated. And yes, I know a lot of people don't like him. It's he's one of those styles. It's like you love or hate it kind of guy. And he does those gritty films in London, which not a lot of people can relate to. And sometimes people have trouble understanding the the thick <laughs> accents in his films. But if you just t- pay attention and watch a few times, you'll get it. But Guy Ritchie is such a a, a sharp filmmaker. He's he's creative. He's inventive. I think he's a very confident, even brave filmmaker because he does a lot of things that another filmmaker, a lot of filmmakers wouldn't even dare attempt, especially in a big budget film. And specifically, his editing style, his visual effects, and everything. So he 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 pushes the boundaries, and he's clearly influenced so many great directors, young ones too. Yeah, absolutely. And he, uh, I think it's safe to say he doesn't he doesn't play it safe when he makes these movies because so many. Filmmakers, if it's a big budget studio production, they're just gonna like do everything like a, a easily digestible way for audiences. But Richie, it, like he turned his style up a notch to eleven. In I think that his his vision is just absolutely fantastic. In this, he uses some great techniques like slow mo and and he changes the editing up. And uh, he loves to shoot on film, so the cinematography looks fantastic. And he likes things to be gritty and dark and 
you can see like the grime on the city. I mean, th this time in London, all the roads are dirt. You know, there aren't there are only a few cars around. It's just before the Industrial Revolution hit, so it is a grimy, dirty, probably smelly city. And he really shows that he doesn't cut around corners. He doesn't make uh, London look super beautiful. He makes it look very true to probably what it was like back then. Yeah, I think he's a very bright guy too. And if you've ever heard him speak, he's clearly highly intelligent and eloquent, despite being famous for you know making these stories of of gritty, tough streets of England and. He's, his early films, Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, show his creativity as a director. And like every time I watch those, I think of Mean Streets with Scorsese. You see like the the basic fundamentals of this great talent and the, the vision and, and the artist developing in, in the films. And I think he's a very relatable filmmaker. He can tackle any part of society. Like all the Sherlock films, they have like this these these states of like lower class and like blue collar employees and, and tough working individuals as well as high society at the same time. So he's able to operate in any sort of society mm -hmm. with ease and, and make it relatable. And he's also a kind of a guy that's had every kind of job you can think of and makes him a very humble and grounded filmmaker. And he's also a martial artist. He's a, he's a black belt in jujitsu. So he, he understands the physicality not of just film in general with action scenes, but also just Sherlock and the character. And he, he does a great job bringing physicality to drama. And he knows, and he, I think he respects martial arts and he, he pays homage to so many martial arts in, in these movies specifically. I'm sure he was a, a, a surprising choice. Uh, obviously, he had a great pitch for his vision and the studio bought it, but I think he was a, a perfect filmmaker for this because his very unique editing style, which can be very fast-paced and untraditional and visually stunning, but also very strange and weird at times, the way he edits sequences together. He's like uh, Edgar Wright on drugs a little bit, if you think about it. Well, you can clearly see yeah. Edgar Wright just is probably worships Guy Ritchie's yeah, films. exactly. And so that editing style, I think, worked perfectly for portraying what's going on in Sherlock's mind when he's thinking things over. And they use several editing montages of... Uh, of showing what he's how he's coming up with sequences and and going over his clues and ideas and it's perfectly demonstrated with his eclectic editing in this film this episode of raiders of the lost podcast is sponsored by movieposters.com use coupon code raiders 15 to get 15 percent off your order today movieposters.com sent us all these fantastic posters you see on our walls on the set these posters are high quality they look great they're really cheap, so I recommend MoviePosters.com. It's the best place to get your movie posters online. Don't go to Amazon. Go MoviePosters.com. The holiday season is here. You got to get presents for the movie lovers in your life. I couldn't recommend MoviePosters.com more enough. What's better for a film lover than a movie poster for your bedroom or your main room? Two it's movie great. posters. Two movie posters. That's great. <laughs> great, great point. Use our coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your purchase today. Again, Raiders15 to get 15% off your purchase today. And fun fact about Guy Ritchie, he was actually married to Madonna for eight years, and they divorced in 2008, the year before this film came out. And in the divorce settlement between Madonna and Guy Ritchie, it called for Guy Ritchie to receive roughly $75 million of Madonna's estimated $490 million net worth at the time, which is absurd. It's a lot of money. Don't get married in California. <laughs> and Sherlock is just... He is very funny, and I don't think they really showed that in any previous adaptations. And And I think one of the strengths of these movies is that they're a lot of fun. They're super entertaining, and they're funny. Like, you, I'll watch these movies, and I'll crack up constantly, especially with the relationship between Sherlock and Watson. In the books, he's 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 
very much like this Jula adaptation, but in the, in the, all the previous movies and TV shows, he's kind of like just the sidekick, uh, not very smart and kind of comical, but uh, Jula made him intelligent and confident and uh, a military veteran because he, in the books, he is a real veteran. He, he fought in Afghanistan, and that's why he actually has a limp because he had a, a war injury. And so I think Jula, as Dr. Watson in this film, is a fantastic um companion to uh, Downey's Holmes. This is my favorite representation of Watson in TV and film, and I've been a fan of Jude Law for years, and, and it seems to that he operates best as like a co-lead or a supporting actor. He, he doesn't, it's not that he can't carry a movie, it's that I think a lot of audiences have trouble accepting him as a lead actor for a film, so that's why I don't think he really gets those lead roles, but he's a fantastic supporting character. He's perfect as, John, as Dr. John Watson. He's got this great combination, obviously, of looks, charm, and talent, Jude Law. In the books and short stories, Sherlock does the majority of the work in solving these cases without much help from Watson a lot of the time. And usually Watson's just waiting for him to come home and tell him what happened. And uh, Watson in the in the movies with, with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, he's very much involved with the adventures. He's very much involved in the action, which I love seeing him much more hands-on as a character in the films. And obviously they're doing that in the other adaptations with Sherlock too. And so I really enjoy the fact that they're they're giving life to Watson as well. And which, if you think about it, he's easily the most transformed character in the series compared to the to the to the books and novels. Because, like I said, Watson generally just doesn't he just narrates everything. He, he kind of listens to Sherlock's uh, talks, and obviously he's on some cases, but generally he's he's at he's at Baker Street with a cigar at the end of a day with a cup of tea. Yeah, well, nearly all of the stories and novels are written. Um, like you said, uh, narr- they're not just narrated by John, but the idea is that John Watson is actually w- acting as Sherlock's unofficial biographer. So he's writing down all the stories and exploits and adventures that either he joins Sherlock on or Sherlock just tells him. And so they're all pretty much adventures that um, sh- that Dr. Watson is um, jotting down and, and he, a- he sells them to the magazines in that world. And that makes Sherlock... Uh, a famous person in the Sherlock world. The chemistry between these two is it's so great. They and I love how they did not make this an origin story. I think it wouldn't have worked as well at all if it was just how did Sherlock become Sherlock Holmes? It's like I think we've we're kind of sick of origin stories and I think starting the starting the film it seems as though they've been at it for years now. They've been a partnership for a long time. And I think that was such a great way to open the movie rather than making the whole film about how he became becomes the famous Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah, I agree. We'll get to that in a little bit, too. But I just want to talk about Downey for a little bit. Robert Downey Jr. lit the world on fire at this time. And obviously, Iron Man the year before in 2008 was a huge success. And then Sherlock also made over $500 million in 2009. Huge success, again, for a period piece. This is insane. And then, you know, Downey was coming. He still wasn't a household name at the time because of his, his history and in and out of jail and so he was just he boomed into this massive movie star over in a period of a year and a half basically and he seems to play that slightly narcissistic arrogant witty almost anti-hero hero so well and he's he's as perfect as he is for iron man i think he's even more perfect for sherlock holmes because i couldn't imagine anybody else pulling off sherlock holmes the way that downey does and he's just perfect with the charm and the wittiness because that's what downey's like in real life and tony stark and, and sherlock have a lot of similarities in his in his versions of them obviously because they're as much him as as any as the other characters as well but he just brings so much to the character that i don't think anyone else could have pulled off and for an american doing an english accent he does a pretty damn good job because it doesn't seem to usually go that well when you have an American doing that. Couldn't agree more. And 
this guy went from destitute former drug user who was just trying to find work to being the face of two major film franchises that were coming out at the same time. I mean, this guy made Iron Man 1, then Sherlock, and then Iron Man 2. Those were the three movies he made in a row. So he was just making giant movie after giant movie. And I think Sherlock solidified his status as a star because Iron Man, yeah, you can have one hit, but to have another hit, that's pretty tough. And he pulled it off. And I honestly, as much as I love Tony Stark, I like his portrayal of Sherlock better than Tony Stark. That's just me. I'm a big fan of the character in the books, and I think that he is a perfect Sherlock Holmes, and he's my favorite actor to play him. And I think that he just taps into so much of the character while also making it his own. He makes Sherlock like a mix of like charm and ego. He has a lot of charisma. Uh, he's very playful. Uh, they, they they don't take themselves too seriously, and he's just entertaining. I don't think anyone can pull off Sherlock the way he did. And also Hans Zimmer. My dude, Hans, is phenomenal, obviously, but he kills the Sherlock Holmes scores because they're obviously completely different than anything in his entire catalog of filmography, of his music. They're, they're so unique to compared to everything else because that's the kind of guy that Hans Zimmer is. And in Sherlock, the first one, he does a, a great job, and he, he matches the energy and mood and, and, the, and the charm and the playfulness of the characters and, and the storyline with the music. And then he even steps the game up in Game of Shadow somehow. And just, just like the stakes are raised, the music is increased and it's a lot more classical and boomy. And, and it, he, he's such a great um, composer. And we'll talk about it more when we talk about the films specifically, individually. But I, I just love him so much, and I love these scores to death. And I, I, I basically know them by heart almost. Anyone who says Hans Zimmer repeats himself and all the stuff sounds the same, they're not listening to scores like these where he just created, once again, an iconic theme for an iconic character. And like we've, we've talked about Hans before, and he has this innate ability to use instruments that are appropriate for the times and periods and, and locations the films are set in. And... He uses so such a great uh, eclectic mix of instruments for this score. And most notably, uh, he uses primarily the fiddle, which is important because the fiddle is actually the instrument that Sherlock likes to play. And so it rep it's a great representation of the character in the music. And in the sequel in Game of Shadows, he, he went uh, overseas and did a lot of um, recording with the Romina people. Uh, to capture their sound and their voice and their music for that film because the, it deals a lot with that culture and yeah, the gypsies. gypsy culture. So we'll talk about that when we talk about Game of Shadows because that score is just completely unique to anything he's ever made as well. And again, Sherlock Holmes, compared to the source material, they made him into a superhero, an action star, but that's what happens in Hollywood and that's how you get people to go to the movies. And I know that upsets a lot of people that are just devout to the original stories and books, but, you know, it's, 20, it's the 21st century. We get a... You gotta change with the times, and this is how you get people to see movies. You gotta you gotta up the ante, and obviously, yeah, we love mystery mystery films, and like Knives Out isn't an action action movie, and that's a great mystery movie. But when we're talking about a a famous fictional character that has to compete with superheroes now, you gotta up the ante. You gotta bring the action, and they basically just have to reinvent the character in a way. And that's why I think I like this franchise. It's one of my favorite current franchises because it's so much different from the others, and I love period pieces, and it's rare to have. A period piece franchise i mean can you think of another one that's a franchise and it's rare and i think that the filmmaking is so great the acting is so great and the scripts both of them 
are extremely smart. Like these are great stories. They're incredible scripts, and I think they did a fantastic job writing because it's a daunting task to to adapt Sherlock Holmes, and you have to make the story uh, very uh, mysterious, and uh, you gotta also place all the clues out for the audience to see, and you also have to keep them guessing and keep keep it all hidden while showing them at the same time. And both of these films, they successfully do that. Where if you watch these films, you see every clue that Sherlock sees. They don't hide anything from the audience. That's important because then it doesn't make it seem like Sherlock, how did he figure that out? He's figuring it out because he's seeing what we're seeing and they wisely do that in this movie in these movies. And I think the biggest con and knock that a lot of people have on specifically the first film directly related to clues is they say, Oh, we just get a movie of, of this detective looking at clues, but we don't know how they relate to the story or the overall ending and it just is just long story, and then it finally ends in the last four minutes when he just tells you how it ends and tells you the secret behind everything. They seem like that's kind of a uh, an easy out for the filmmakers, but really, that's how it is in the stories. You never know what's going on in the in the stories and the cases. Like we said, it's literally Sherlock's off doing stuff, and Doctor Watson's telling you what's going on to the best of his knowledge. But just like us in the audience, we're basically kept in the dark too. And it's not until the end of the sto- short stories that Sherlock reveals his master plan and reveals everything that happened in the case and solves the case. So it's just like the stories actually. So when you complain about not being able to understand what the clues are. They're being they're being true to the source material like that. That's exact. You're exactly right. They that's ex- precisely how it is in the books. And Watson in the first film even says like, "What's what's wrong? There must be something wrong with me if I keep following you on these escapades and you keep me in the dark until the very end. Like yeah, I never know what's going on because that's what the, what it's like in the books. Because Sherlock, that's the way he operates, and he doesn't let anyone in. He, he just absorbs information and. Uh, he's just a very uh, strange character. Um, some people think he has Asperger's syndrome um, because he's so antisocial. Uh, he's difficult to connect with. He doesn't um, show emotion really. And he's just focused on his one task at hand. And so uh, he doesn't waste any time. He doesn't waste any, uh, he would say, like any brain power on anything that's useless. And so that's why, even though he has a genius level intellect, he could literally accomplish anything. Uh, learn anything he wanted to and become an expert in pretty much any field imaginable. But he instead uh, uses all of his brain resources to learn information and gather information just for the sole purpose of detection. And so he doesn't bother with anything else. If it if, if a piece of information or uh, cult popular culture uh, doesn't uh, help him in a case, he doesn't want to know it. So he's very uh, one-track mind in, in, in that case. And even in one of the stories, I remember he, he has a fiancé, but he only is engaged to the woman to get more information on a case. <laughs> so that's really all he thinks about is solving cases. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just like the stories. And if you have a problem with not being fed all the exposition and information up front, then, I mean, you just got to open yourself to to movies. That's what we talk about. You got to... A, a film like this just shut your brain off in terms of like being upset before you go in and being upset during just enjoy it it's a great entertainment it's a lot of fun we're gonna get into these films in a second but i love them they're, they're a blast and just just try to have that's the whole point of film is to have an experience not every film has to win an oscar not every film has to be the best movie you've ever seen but these are a great time at the movies i saw someone <laughs> on metacritic give it a zero out of 100. And a that's zero just, that's just someone that's just a hater for a living for the first film for the first no for the second one how do you give it a zero it's zero a out of 100. that person just like people like that and critics like that like they walk into movies wanting to hate them don't you I, that's there's this thing with modern critics where they they already, like, they put all their shit into the reviews. Like, if they're upset in their life, like, they show it in their writing. And 
they're never impressed by anything and they just want to hate on stuff. Like, how can you hate on a movie? Yeah, like and like you always say, one of my favorite things you say to me is no one goes out to make a bad movie. Yeah. Everyone wants to make a good movie. Everyone has good intentions, so you can't give a, a movie a zero. I don't care what the movie, even the, the Holmes movie with Will Ferrell, you can't give that a zero. You can get, at least give it a five, you know. <laughs> a lot of people work hard on these. But I couldn't believe that um, the second film is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. 59%, I think. Ridiculous. And the user rating is very fresh. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get to that when we get into the Game of Shadows. But yeah. let's... I, you ready to get into the films? Oh, I'm ready. Because, I mean, wow, we're like 30 minutes in. we got to start talking about the actual movies because, yeah, man. People are going to be like, are we, are we talking about the movie or I what? I love Sherlock. <laughs> but, yeah, let's get into the first film, Sherlock Holmes, released on Christmas Day in 2009, directed by Guy Ritchie, written by Michael Robert Johnson, Anthony Peckham, Simon Kinberg, Lionel Wigram, and Michael Robert Johnson, characters by Arthur Conan Doyle. This film stars Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law, Rachel McAdams, and Mark Strong. The film had a budget of $90 million and a worldwide box office of $524 million. The world's most brilliant detective meets his match, Lord Blackwood. With his partner, Dr. John Watson, Sherlock Holmes investigates how Blackwood rose from the grave after being executed and tries to thwart his evil plans. I think it was brilliant in this film to have the villain be uh, a supernatural-esque villain because it happens a few times in the novels because back then, things like supernatural forces and and good and evil and heaven and hell, they were things that people really thought were very tangible. And so if something crazy and unexplainable happened, uh, it was often uh, described as supernatural. And uh, so I think having the character have appear to have powers of some kind of uh, godlike quality, it was a great character to pit against the, the deductive reasoning of Sherlock Holmes. I love this movie. It's fast-paced. It's hysterical. It's really well shot and directed. Um, it's definitely one of Guy Ritchie's best films. His signature's all over the place. And again, this is a reinvention, basically, of Sherlock Holmes and the character uh, to bring him to modern audiences. And in this film, Ritchie really walks this fantastic tightrope of like re refined aesthetic and quality as well as that rough, gritty, kinetic Guy Ritchie energy that he brings to films and the physicality with drama. And this movie opens with an incredible opening scene. It's it's a the first ten minutes might be the best part of the entire it, film. We're right in the middle of a chase. It opens with a shot of the production logos of the production houses in cobblestone on the London gritty floors, grounds of London. And then he pans the camera up to a carriage, a horse-drawn carriage that cruises past the camera. Guy Ritchie watches his carriage for like five seconds, and then he chases after the carriage. It's just such a fun, interesting shot to bring you into this adventure. And like you said, we're already in a chase within the opening of the scene. We're in a chase, and he really puts you, and even though you're in a movie theater seat or on your couch, you feel like you're part of the chase now. Yeah, it's so, so full of energy, and right away he shows you the aesthetic that he has intended for his vision of this movie, and it looks fantastic. It looks so different from any other high-budget film that you're going to see. And I, I love this because it introduces Sherlock and Watson in a fun way of them in the middle of a case, uh, literally chasing um, down the, the location of a ritualistic sacrifice. And I love the introduction of these two because first Sherlock fights that guy, and we get uh, Guy Ritchie's first example of uh, showing how Sherlock can use his mind to strategize and predict uh, moves in a fight. And he uses this incredibly uh, beautiful slow motion uh, cinematography to depict the different blows and, uh, and attacks that Sherlock would use as defense and attacks in the fights. And 
we see him first imagine the fight and then carry out the fight exactly how, how he predicted, as only someone with his genius intellect can do. And I think uh, they do this a few more times in each movie, and I think it's a brilliant way to showcase uh, the visuals of Guy, of Guy Ritchie to complement the way Sherlock's mind works. And like you said, Ritchie really introduces us to both these characters so well. Again, uh, Watson catches up with Sherlock, and Sherlock's trying to pick a, a lock, and... You know, Sherlock is is a very intellectual person. He likes to use these these intricate st- skills that he studies and refines. And he's trying to spend his time to do this very smart, intense thing of picking a lock. <laughs> whereas Watson just kicks the lock door down with his foot to show like their different personalities, as well as they're in the middle of strangling a guy and they're having a, a casual conversation about a, a jacket. I think. Yeah, and, yeah. And the waistcoat. Yeah, yeah the waist a, jacket. It's hysterical. And we also in this conversation learn that Doctor Watson, that Watson's a doctor, and this is just a great way to introduce us to the characters and and just their their relationship too because like you said earlier they open up the series clearly halfway probably through their relationship they're mm-hmm. they're middle aged they clearly have been doing this for a long time they're friends and we'll find out throughout the film like they have like a marriage couple's fighting relationship yeah because they have been together for a while and eventually we will learn that Watson is planning to move on, planning on moving on and and eventually marrying the woman he's seeing and, and so there's going to be a lot of conflict between these two. And I just love the shot where once they subdue that guy, they both take off the hat and coat they were both wearing as disguises. And then, and then it's like, okay, this is Holmes and Watson. And they let's, shake hands. Let's get going. <laughs> it's, it's great. And then, like I said earlier, uh, having this uh, very uh, intense ritualistic uh, sacrificial scene is a great uh, fo- foil for the Sherlock Holmes in terms of investigating a crime because... The filmmakers do such a good job, and Lord Blackwood is so uh, terrifying, and Mark Strong does a great job portraying him, where it seems as though Sherlock could have met his match with this person with unnatural uh, superhuman powers and abilities, and it's a very daunting task, it looks like. Yeah, so obviously Sherlock and Watson foil this plot or this plan of of sacrificial, uh, of a sacrifice of this young girl for Lord Blackwood because, again, played by Mark Strong, who's a very underrated actor. He kills every role he's in. I love him every time he's in a movie. Um, And Lord Blackwood is terrifying because he's this, like, satanic worshiper in this weird cult that's very similar to the Freemasons. And um, it gives me me those vibes. It's called the Temple of the Four Orders, and he's obviously got these dark plans. And we don't really find out until later on that everything about this guy is a facade. He's not really mystical. He has no powers, but what he uses is the power of fear, and he uses fear to take over people's imaginations, which makes themselves, which makes people afraid themselves of Lord Blackwood. And they they give Lord Blackwood these mystical powers, and the rumors spread, and yeah. and their gossip spreads. And, and Lord Blackwood's very much a representation of the devil. You know, he operates in smoke and mirrors. He's he's very he's a trickster. Um, the biggest tool, again, is to use fear against themselves. And obviously in the beginning scene, we have that great shot where Watson is stopped by Sherlock because Sherlock saves his life basically with this invisible glass needle that Blackwood has that would have impaled uh, Watson and killed Watson on the spot. But to anyone watching, it would have looked like that Blackwood had just killed him with like invisible powers. So obviously, again, everything is a facade with this guy. Yeah, so he doesn't just use fear, but he creates fear through the use of illusions. So he's very much 
like a, a magician. He's in, like Mysterio. Yeah, he uses parlor tricks and um, sleight of hand and uh, well-planned uh, antics and, and trickery to to fool people to create these illusions which uh, make it seem as though he does have uh, superhuman abilities of some dark nature. And this, because it's the 20th century, uh, people aren't used to things like this happening in real life and they don't understand science mostly. They don't... And and magicians are still off, honestly believed to be like possessing in real magic half the time. So a lot of people are fooled by these tricks as being uh, uh, real powers that this man possesses. It seems like Sherlock and Watson obviously are the only people that really aren't convinced of this being some otherworldly power because what happens is they catch him and he obviously goes to the gallows and gets hung. But we have that great conversation between Blackwood and Sherlock while he's in prison. He says that more uh, victims will die. There will be more deaths. Yeah, he says it's, like, it's not going to end with his death. Yeah, and then so uh, he gets hung and buried in a tomb, but then he resurrects later on, which is the main mystery of the, of the rest of the plot. And again, Sherlock is not fooled by mysticism, and he's just a very logical person, so he doesn't see it as something otherworldly and other powerful but it's it's a great story because we have these underlying themes of like these cults that kind of run the world with this this temple of the four orders yeah what kind of things happen on these because we know similar types of situations and rituals and freemasons and, and organizations kid. really do happen around the world and and it's it's very curious what what happens in there if anyone wants to know watch a movie like eyes wide shut kubrick made and it's like it shows oh, it opens the doors of societies like that and then after this opening sequence, uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie is uh, we finally get to see like a classic introduction of Sherlock and Watson where after uh, several months, Watson comes to visit Sherlock at 221 Baker and he finds Sherlock, uh, he's got all the blinds closed and he's, he's firing his gun at the wall trying to make a silenced pistol. And it's just a, a perfect demonstration of when Sherlock is isolated and, and high on drugs and when he doesn't have a case to work on, he kind of becomes crazy and he, he loses track of his mind. And Again, this is what Sherlock's like in the books. Really, when Watson's not there and he's not on a case, there's multiple situations in the books and stories where Watson, one of them, he's like, Watson goes, what is it today? Is it morphine or cocaine? And he's like, oh, it's a 7% reduction of cocaine today. <laughs> Would you like some? So it, it's it's really true. This is what happens when Sherlock has doesn't have a case and when Watson's away. And we're also introduced to Irene Adler in the story who actually is a prominent figure in in the lore um, verbally, but she's only appears in one of the books and in the film and in the stories, she's the only woman to outsmart Sherlock and get the one up on him. And she also is a romantic love interest to Sherlock Holmes. Um, she, Rachel McAdams is so good as Irene Adler in this film. She does a great job portraying this character. Um, and she just has a great, she has a great chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. as well. And I, I love like their 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 funny cute scenes where you, you feel the tension between them and they clearly have a past and when she's trying to get through his, where he's trying to make sure his safe hasn't been cracked because she's in the living room <laughs> so it's just fun to see their playfulness yeah like when he when she sees his his when she sees her photo on his desk he tells her that he's been just reading up on her in case someone asks him to to investigate her so he's <laughs> he's pretending to not care about her but obviously. He cares very much about her, and she's probably the only person he's ever had uh, intimate feelings for. And the reason for that is because she is uh, very much a, an equal counterpart to him. She got the better of him, like you said, and uh, she's often referred to in the books as the woman. And the framed photo is actually 
from the novel that she's in where um, as a, a token, he Sherlock kept a framed photo of her as payment for helping her. And so that photo actually has a, a, a big history that they don't really dive into, but you can tell just from their chemistry and just their the way they interact, they do have a history. In this film, again, it's action-packed in a, in a really funny and unique way, and we have Holmes and Watson doing their investigation that Watson doesn't realize is a part of uh, when they when they go, <laughs> and, and he's trying to track down leads, and they, they stumble upon the, the two henchmen that are trying to dispose of evidence, and we have that giant dude, and we have this great fight where Sherlock's <laughs> trying to take down this uh, tre- dredger, I think his name's. Uh, yeah, dredger. Oh, Dredger, something like that. <laughs> and um, he's just this massive human being, and they go back and forth, and uh, Holmes actually gets that like little electric device. And it's just really cool, unique action. And then we get a real glimpse of the world building that Guy Ritchie and the filmmakers did in post-production and during the filmmaking because they have these enormous elaborate sets, and we're talking like they have a cruise ship, basically. And then you can see these giant docks and massive sets, and a lot of it's green screen, and they did a great job just bringing Victorian London back to the back to real life and breathing new life into that that era well yeah exactly well so a lot of the sets they actually are real sets like that harbor is real and all the streets pretty much are real because london obviously is a very old city and a lot of the architecture from this period is still there so what they do is like they'll go to a street in london and the buildings are old but obviously the streets are still modern so they'll cover the roads with dirt and then at the end of the street they'll put up this giant um green screen on the street and so they're able to film the street with the with the newly um dirt roads and then for anything where the green screen is they just uh literally cgi in the rest of the road and the 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 landscape of the city in the background so it's a combination of shooting in these in the city which has still a lot of filmable areas for this period piece while also blending cgi into it yeah i know uh jude laws from london born and raised and he actually said that he was t- even though they were shooting all over London, he was taken to places to film that he's never been before. So they found a ton of like really cool old back alleys and environments to actually take advantage of mm-hmm. practically and visually to with visual effects to just enhance the world and, and go back in time. And um, one of my favorite parts of the film is just a quick scene where we get a glimpse at the real arch nemesis of Sherlock oh, yeah. Holmes with Moriarty. And um, this is where we learn that he's really already in control of Irene Adler, who's working for him. And I love that they saved Moriarty for the second film because, yes, he's the number one villain in the Sherlock uh, world. He's his arch nemesis. But I, I, I'm so happy they didn't waste him on the first film just to, and they built up to him instead. Yeah, and at, Sherlock still doesn't know who this person is, but he can deduce that he is a professor of some kind because he sees chalk on his lapel. And I love this sequence where... First, he has that uh, interaction with Irene in, in his house, and then Irene leaves, and then there's that really funny chase sequence where he's following Irene around, and first he jumps out of the window. Are you wearing a fake nose? <laughs> <laughs> Is that a false nose? No. <laughs> and then he, as he's following Irene, he's gathering things to make his disguise better, and uh, Richie shoots it in such a fun way. Zimmer's music is is a lot of it's very entertaining and and playful and upbeat. And I think it's just a great sequence to show that, that the tone isn't all dark. It's very playful. And Sherlock is a master of disguise. He does a lot of disguises in the novels. And so it was great to see him actually wear something like prosthetic noses and, and fake hair. And Because it's not something that was really done too much in any of the other movies, but it's something he does very often in the books. Yeah, and we also get a lot more background on the Temple of the Fours and, and more background on... 
Blackwood and how he was conceived during a ritual of this cult and these people basically run the world. They have uh, like prime ministers and in high society and, and and politicians from all over the world, the United States and England and, and Europe in their cults and in their in their order, if that's what you want to call it. And um and this is where we learn about Blackwood and how they actually believe that he has real powers and throughout the film he comes back to the four orders and he actually manages to turn light one of them on fire. I think the the guy from the United States who's, Standish. Yeah, he was trying to end it because Blackwood's revealing his plans with uh the with the politician coward that he wants to take over England and take over the United States yeah, with be- fear. Exactly. Because after his uh, supposed resurrection, the the men in this uh, in this society, they believe that this kind of thing is possible. So so they really believe that Blackwood was dead because when after Blackwood was hanged, it was John Watson actually who uh, checked his pulse to confirm that he was in fact dead on the scene, and so uh, that combined with the fact that his tomb had been uh, completely destroyed and, and opened up, and and that led these people, and it became the, sp- it's, the rumor spread across the city that this villainous character had risen from the dead and he's going to carry out evil acts upon everyone. And so the society really does believe that he has these supernatural powers because they're a society that that um, is ritualizes these things and they want these things to, to, to come true and they it finally has. But connecting to Irene Adler, Irene went to Sherlock's apartment to ask, her, ask him to look for a man named Luke Reardon and Sherlock eventually deduces that um, when he goes to Blackwood's open tomb, uh, Reardon is actually the body within the coffin. And so that's what leads him to that. Um, it's uh, kind of like a laboratory where he sees lots of experiments have been taking place of some chemical nature. And then they get into the fight with the, those three guys and especially the big guy. So Irene um, helped bring Sherlock into this whole thing. Yeah, and then we have a very intense scene where the stakes get risen when Dr. Watson gets seriously injured when they're on their investigation and Irene's kidnapped and hanging up on the chains and um, the building explodes. And we have this very emotional scene where it's very slow-mo. I think Hans Zimmer has a cello playing. I think it's a fiddle still. Is there a fiddle still? Yeah. Um, and then uh, it shows just this massive explosion of Irene and Sherlock trying to survive. And we assume that Watson gets killed while it's happening, but we find out later on that He's just seriously injured, and he's in the hospital. And this is a moment where also Sherlock Holmes has basically a warrant out for his arrest, so he has to go into hiding at the same time because Blackwood's getting more power in Scotland Yard and in the government. And so Lestrade has to try to act like he wants to bring Sherlock Holmes in because he's really their buds, even though Sherlock makes fun of them all the time. I wouldn't say they're buds, but it's but Lestrade is just like someone that is necessary to Sherlock because Sherlock actually never takes credit for his cases he he'll get paid but like he'll always get let Lestrade and and the police take credit for for solving cases um and he he's so mean to Lestrade but because Lestrade is kind of an asshole and there's this great back and forth where um Lestrade um takes him out of uh that jail cell and he says in another life he would have been a great criminal and then Sherlock goes in another life he would have been a great police officer <laughs> 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 they have they have great back and forths. Yeah. And um so yeah, it's an intense scene and now the stakes are risen and, and Sherlock basically has to figure out everything on his own and he gets the help of Irene Adler and obviously we find out that Watson's actually okay and he, he helps in for the third act too to to help join the fight. And this is where Sherlock purposely gets himself arrested to get close to Coward 
to try to figure out where Lord Blackwood is. This is when he he closes up the chimney and allows smoke to form in the room because Coward is loading up a pistol with his back turned to Sherlock, so Sherlock doesn't know that he's loading up a pistol. And then when he finally turns around, he sees that the room is filled with smoke, and it's just a, a great moment. It's clever. It's super clever. It shows just how much ahead, how, how many steps ahead of everyone else Sherlock is, how he can manipulate people, and how he can literally strategize any situation and, and become the victor. Yeah, he does this to f- find information, and he deduces from Coward's boots that he's been in the sewers praying. And this is where they find... Uh, where Blackwood's plan is to kill Parliament, every member of Parliament, with a, a cyanide gas poison. Yeah. And so it's a brilliant plan by Blackwood because what happened was he created this uh, this toxin, this uh, airborne toxin, which he's going to use to kill everyone in Parliament, except for the men who are in the society. And after he killed Standish with the... With the um, burning him up after firing a gun on him after that he had all of the men in society drink from this uh, goblet as a way to pay fealty to blackwood but secretly blackwood put an antidote to this toxin in that wine so that all of the men in the society they're going to be immune to the toxin that's going to pour out in parliament and so that will prove blackwood's true superpowers to everyone and it will make his followers even more devoted and loyal to him. And he will get control of not just England, but also America and the United States. So yeah. it's a very big power play by Blackwood. But obviously, our heroes are here to save the day. And everyone's involved in this. Sherlock, Irene Adler, and Watson. But we don't really know yet that Irene actually is really still working for Moriarty. And she actually steals the cyanide uh, tubes from this, um, this contraption. The contraption that's going to... Yeah set the gas off yeah it's a mechanical and device and then we have another another chasing where irene's trying to escape from sherlock and blackwood irene she is a morally ambiguous character and you know she deep down she's she's good morally but she is a criminal she is very much a, a counterpart to holmes in that way but there is a moral center to her but it seems as though i don't think they explain it at all but i think you can tell that Moriarty is clearly a dangerous person to be dealing with, and I'm sure that if she doesn't succeed in her in the task he has assigned her, she's probably going to die. So you can you can empathize with why she's she would betray Sherlock right here because she's literally just trying to save her own skin. We have a great battle on top of this broken bridge between Sherlock and and Blackwood and Irene. She survives even though she gets pushed over by Blackwood. And it's, just, it's a stunning shot because we're again we're in Victorian London in 1895, I think it is, and you can see the landscape of of the city right in the background. And it's a great shot and, and a great scene. And this is where again this happens in the stories. We don't know the full case until the end. And this is where Sherlock tells Blackwood everything that he knows. And we find out Blackwood, the entire story is all a facade, even wanting, even getting captured and arrested in the beginning of the film with that ritual and the sacrifice was done on purpose to get arrested and get put in that tomb. Exactly. The main steps to Blackwood's plan were, first, he uh, paid the prison guard uh, to pretend to be possessed so that it would, it would spread fear throughout the prison between the other prisoners and the guards so that when Sherlock showed up, everyone was afraid of Blackwood. And then the sandstone tomb that had been apparently broken open by Blackwood's supposed uh, resurrection, it was actually broken beforehand and then ad- and then put back together with uh, adhesive that washed away in the rain. 
And they show clues of this. They show milk and honey uh, in that lab that they enter. Blackwood next killed his father by uh, coming up with a, 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 comp- a chemical compound that uh, paralyzes its subject uh, when combined with copper and water. And so that's why in the copper bathtub, his father dies of para- paralysis because they put the compound on the tub. And they show that again in the lab where they're are dead frogs in small copper pots showing that they actually came up with the compound in that lab as well. And then they killed. he killed Standish by putting a, a flammable compound inside of his bullets so that when if Standish was going to fire on Blackwood, it would set his entire body ablaze, which does. Well, also in the rain outside isn't rain, it's gasoline. Yeah, exactly. Also, so it's covered it, with gasoline. And then obviously the plan to kill par- Parliament with a cyanide toxin while giving the antidote to his followers. And then the final clue that Sherlock reveals is that in order to survive his hanging, uh, Blackwood uh, had this uh, hook system strapped under his coat, and the noose uh, was uh, hooked into this contraption to apply pressure across his his uh, torso to keep his neck from actually choking. And then he also was given a sedative to slow his heart rate and give him a momentary paralysis. And so people, especially Do- Dr. Watson, when he tested his pulse, thought he was really dead. And so Blackwood, like we said, just used a series of intricate but very simple parlor tricks and illusions to create the idea of fear in his uh, persona. And even though he tries to escape a hanging, he ironically ends up hanging to death at the end of the film. And this is where Sherlock gets the compound from Irene Adler and saves the day. And we also learn who she works for. Yeah, She tells him that she works for uh, Moriarty. And she warns that Moriarty is not to be underestimated, most importantly. So mm-hmm. he's doing a, Richie and the filmmakers are doing a great job setting up the sequel. And as the story ends, Watts moves out of 221B Baker Street. We find out that uh, a dead officer was found near Blackwood's device. So obviously, we then learn that Moriarty got the device. He didn't care about the compound. All he wanted was actual the, the device. And he ended up stealing that. So Moriarty got away with that. And we end with Sherlock Holmes looking forward to his new case in with his next adversary. Guy Ritchie originally wanted a younger actor to play Sherlock. Uh, and yeah, they're thinking about someone in their late 20s. Yeah, late 20s. And then they initially thought Downey was too old to play the part. But then I think obviously they realized that he was perfect for the role. Yeah, he's a star and he's so good as Sherlock. And before we get to the next one, I just want to talk about how visually stunning this film is in both of them. And the cinematography is fantastic. It's done by Philippe Russolo, a French DP who's done a ton of great movies like the, the 2001 Planet of the Apes, Antoine Fisher, Constantine, The Nice Guys, the Fantastic Beasts movies. He's obviously done both Sherlock films. So I, I'm a big fan of his work, and I just love the look of these films. They're, they're high contrast, lots of shadows, lots of interesting lighting, and it's, it's just so visually stunning. Yeah, and again, they shoot on film, and it looks fantastic. Next up, we have Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, which was released December 15th, 2011. Directed by Guy Ritchie and written by Michelle Mulroney and Kieran Mulroney. They're actually a husband and wife duo. This film stars Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law, Jared Harris, Numi Rapace, Numi Rapace, and Rachel McAdams. This film grossed $543 million on a budget of $125 million. Sherlock Holmes is in the midst of the greatest case of his career, with the culprit being the evil genius Moriarty. Holmes and his friend Dr. Watson are accompanied by a gypsy named Madame Simsa, 
and chase Moriarty across Europe in the hopes that they can thwart his plot before it can come to fruition. I love Game of Shadows. It's an increase in production value. The stakes are higher. Um, the opening scene, again, it's really fun. It's trying to recapture basically what they did in the original. Sherlock shows off his skills in Master of Disguise, Martial Arts, Superior Intellect, uh, prevents a bomb from destroying a building and killing innocent people, and we're only like eight minutes into the film. It's a great opening. Yeah. Is the action in this film over the top? Yes. Does it have to be? Kind of. I mean, this is Hollywood, and you have a sequel. you got to be bigger. you got to be bolder. you got to be louder. And we have more fights. We have larger obstacles. And overall, a more dangerous adventure. The scope is larger. It kind of feels like when I watch this movie – like a Sherlock Holmes and James Bond movie put together because we're traveling to different countries. Yeah. We have a ton of new characters. The action set pieces are enormous, and it, it's a lot of fun, And I think. And we, I have think a, we have a new Bond girl. Yeah, a new Bond girl. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie is extremely smart. I think it's better than the first one. They topped it, I think. I, I know critics weren't kind to this movie, like we mentioned earlier. It's rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, but I think this movie is absolutely fantastic. It's very intelligent, the script. And it's super entertaining, and it's so funny. It's funnier than the first one. I crack up when I see this movie. It's endlessly entertaining. But also, there's a lot of great themes in this movie, and there are a lot of great motifs in this movie visually. The first major motif is chess, where the entire film is basically a chess game between Moriarty and Sherlock. And there are several uh, chess boards seen in the film, whether it be the actual chess boards they're playing with, or that dance hall at the end of the film at the Peace Summit, the floor is a chess board. And so that theme is heavily prevalent throughout the entire fi- in, throughout the entire film. And then also there's the power dynamic between uh, understanding the story of the fish and the fisherman, the fish and the trout. And both Moriarty and Holmes think that they're the fisherman and think the other one is the trout. And so the eventual story is figuring out who actually is the trout and who actually is the fisherman. I love that you brought up the chess thing because Guy Ritchie's actually an avid chess player and often plays chess on set while he's waiting shots and everything to be set up. And so he loves to challenge his own his own actors at chess. And there's so many fun set photos of him yeah. with like Charlie Hunnam and other actors Downing, playing yeah. set, playing chess. And I don't think any of them have ever beat him at chess. So I think he also puts chess in a lot of his films in terms of having chess boards. They're definitely in his older films. I'm pretty sure there's one in Snatch and in Lock, Stock, and Smoking Barrels. Um, so again... Just to go back on Rotten Tomatoes with this at 59%, they also gave Joker 68%. So, I mean, let's not act like they're an objective media outlet for That you should listen to. And that they're not incredibly biased because they are. Sometimes their ratings are good, but obviously Metacritic's a little better to go by. But this movie made is super successful. Again, the audience score is great. And it turned this franchise into a billion-dollar franchise. Two movies over $500 million. Exactly. And the production value is absolutely stunning. The cinematography is great. The the sets, the production design, the costuming, everything has been upped. Obviously, they got a lot more money. And Guy Ritchie makes it look like it's worth $200 million. It's just a beautiful movie. And I think that the movie works so well in particular because they got a fantastic actor for Moriarty and Moriarty is obviously he's Sherlock Holmes uh, arch nemesis but he's not in very many of the stories he's just in the final problem and he's mentioned a couple of times offhand in a couple of the other stories but otherwise that's it and so uh, he's not like this huge character in the lore but he is Sherlock Holmes greatest adversary and I, I think that Jared Harris, who actually is Richard Harris's son, who played Dumbledore. This is his his son. I always forget that. Yeah, <laughs> they look and sound a lot yeah. alike. 
they he did such a fantastic job with Moriarty because he makes Moriarty uh, he's brilliant, he's sinister. Uh, he seems he's very polite and uh, reserved, but he also seems like he's like really disturbed and uh, sociopathic and and enjoys uh, uh, inciting violence and enjoys causing pain and death. And I think that Harris uh, st- uh, balances on this tightrope between uh, being a little too uh, extreme but also being believable. And I I just love his performance as Moriarty. Yeah, the final problem is actually the story that. Doyle tried to kill Sherlock Holmes with, but obviously the public went crazy and forced him to bring him back, and he brought him back in The Hounds of Baskerville, I believe. And this is my favorite Jared Harris role. He's a great actor, a very underrated guy. He's also in Man from Uncle, so obviously him and Guy Ritchie are going to have a great working relationship probably for the rest of their lives. He's great in Mad Men. Yeah, so he's an awesome actor, and uh, and it's so great to get the full glimpse of Moriarty when we were just teased with him in in the first film, and we obviously just saw him in the shadows of that carriage, and um, it wasn't even the same actor probably as someone else doing the voice because it doesn't sound the same. So and what happened, it was a different actor, but then after this film it came out, uh, they dubbed, uh, they had Jared Harris re-record that dialogue and they dubbed it over into the first film. So anytime you see it on a streaming service or you buy a DVD or Blu-ray, now it's been updated with his voice in the first movie. Damn, because my Blu-ray I bought when it came out, yeah. so like I don't have that new version. That's yeah, too it's bad. a different actor, yeah. It's all good. But um, Sherlock and Moriarty seem to be more of equals than Blackwood was because again Blackwood is a very intelligent nemesis but again he's smoke and mirrors he's just all illusion whereas Moriarty intellectually and physically is is on is in the same field and level as Sherlock Holmes and they have similar attributes in terms of their intelligence and and, and fighting prowess because we learned that Moriarty was a boxing champion at school and Aside from their attributes that are similar, he also has immense greed, he lacks morals, he has a massive lust for power and psychotic goals in terms of he wants to basically create a world war and profit off of it. And so he's going to do this under the shadows and illusions of being a professor at Oxford and he's a writer and and no one knows that he's this really just this mastermind of this anarchist plot to use bombings and assassinations to create this world war to pit nation against nation. It's a brilliant plan, and I love how we open this film where Sherlock, between these two films, has clearly been spending a long time building a case and investigating every detail of Moriarty's uh, actions. And we learn that uh, Moriarty has set himself up as a businessman by buying and taking control of companies that produce lumber, steel, and then arms and weapons so that when uh, if he if he can create a world war, he owns the supply, so he wants to now create the demand for these supplies. And so it's a brilliant plan because if world war erupts, he would become insanely rich because of the companies he now owns. In the, in the first act of the film... We have Moriarty obviously interacting with Irene Adler, and he said Richie and the filmmakers suggest that he kills Irene Adler. I don't think that he killed her. I think that he wanted to make it look like she died in order to use that against Sherlock Holmes and to weaken Sherlock Holmes because I think that let's say Sherlock Holmes is out of the picture, then I think Irene Adler would still be a valuable asset to him once Sherlock's gone, and I think he would still make Irene Adler work for him. Obviously, they don't show if she dies or not. 
I think they show her collapse. They yeah. show her collapse, and we see the blood on the handkerchief that Moriarty gives to Sherlock. But again, we don't see her die. So I think that if they make a third one, she'll be back. I think you're right. I thought initially, I I see it as she's she's killed by Moriarty in this film. But that is a good point because um, the reason why he does this to Irene is because Moriarty realizes that uh, Irene is uh, is susceptible to f- um, her feelings for Sherlock, and it's compromised her. And obviously it compromised her on this first task where she was supposed to deliver this packet where the bomb was going to kill a plastic surgeon at the opera house. But uh, Sherlock thwarted it because uh, he has uh, he and Irene have a, a relationship and she wasn't able to keep him out of the situation. And so that would that would that theory does make sense where if if Moriarty eliminates Sherlock from Irene's life, then it would make her an asset again. So I think you you could be right there. Yeah, I think it's a great job to have Irene potentially die in this film early on because it makes the characters faced with death, really. Because in the first film, obviously the stakes are high and there's a lot of dangerous situations, but we don't really think any of them are going to die. But to actually kill one of the main three characters in the film pretty early, it shows that there's actually expandability and raises the stakes that... Obviously, you can't just kill Sherlock or Watson, but suggesting the death of Irene early in the film raises the stakes again for the audience watching the story. Yeah, it's not a Marvel movie. And we're also introduced to a new character, Madame Simza, played by Numi Rapace, who's famous for playing Elizabeth Salander in the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo Swedish trilogy of the films, um, which she's awesome as Elizabeth Salander. If you haven't seen the Swedish version and you're a fan of the, of the books, definitely check him out because they actually made all three and she's great as it. And Simza is an important character to the plot of the film because she once belonged to the anarchist group that Moriarty now controls and whose brother was also once a member is missing and is somehow involved with the main plot of Moriarty's scheme. It's a great introduction to the character and it's an example of they do this a few times in the movie. Uh, It's really great writing where they set up a scene and then they flip it on its head and completely alter our expectations. And the first time is when Irene meets uh, Moriarty where they are having a conversation. It is inten- it is tense, but it doesn't seem like she's going to get killed right there. But then they surprise us by having the entire restaurant stand up and leave the room under the control and orders of Moriarty. So uh, now immediately the scene has become full of danger for Irene. And the same thing happens with uh, when Sherlock meets Simza where at first we think it's just a, a transaction for like a, a, a hand reading or whatever. And then we learn tarot that, cards. Tar- tarot cards. <laughs> Get sorry, it right. Sorry, spiritual guys. The moon is not in your in your vision right now. <laughs> and so it begins as this transactional performance kind of thing. And then Sherlock reveals the information he has, and he knows that he knows her brother. And we learn that he only took uh, Watson here to meet Simza on his own. And so the entire situation and dynamic has flipped on its head, and it's a completely different situation for them. And they do this a few other times in the movie, and it's a really great way of giving information without being too obvious at first. And yes, the stakes are raised, and there's more danger, but again, there's more humor in this film. And just to step back a little bit, the contrast between Sherlock and Watson in this compared to the first film are even more apparent. They, They have multiple conversations where all they do is go back and forth with like, 
opposite adjectives to describe themselves. <laughs> it's just hysterical and just constantly bickering and fighting. And Sherlock forgets that he was in charge of uh, Watson's stag party. And that's the reason why they end up going to meet with Sims is because he's made, he already he, had the plan. He was going to go there anyways to, to further his investigation. And they have a, another great introduction when Watson shows up at Baker Street and and the the apartment is just filled with plants and he, ferns. He opens and, the door; it's like yeah, a jungle. Yeah, and you can hear Sherlock is like making monkey sounds or whatever. It's so funny. And then he's wearing his urban camouflage. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, a great introduction, and uh, I love how. So Sherlock hides his what he really feels from others, especially with Watson, where obviously he's. He's very funny in the way he he hates that Watson's being going to get married to Mary. And he's joking about it, obviously, and it's just it's played for laughs. But ultimately, Sherlock is uh, afraid of Watson getting married because he's his only friend. And so he thinks that if Watson gets married, he's never going to see Watson again. He's, he's going to be out of his life, and he's not going to be his partner anymore. And so uh, Sherlock has um, some deep insecurities about the marriage itself. Yeah, he calls marriage eternal purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> marriage! <laughs> and uh, we we truly don't see the the obsession that Sherlock has or the scope of the case until Watson's there at the apartment and he opens his old bedroom door while Sherlock's changing for the stag party. And we see the giant wall... Spider, uh, spider web of connections and, and investigation parcels and, and photographs and information. And it always reminds me of that scene in Always Sunny in Philadelphia yeah. <laughs> when Charlie's in the mailroom. <laughs> it's so funny. And uh, He doesn't exist! <laughs> what's the person's name? I can't remember. <laughs> Drinking the coffee. <laughs> and so we, we understand now that this is serious and this is big and Sherlock's devoting clearly a lot of time to it because some time passed be- between the first uh, parts of the film and now, and we just assumed that Sherlock was off on some other cases, but clearly he's spending all of his time when he's not doing his urban camouflage thinking of Moriarty in the case. Yeah, he, he tells Watson this is the, the greatest case of his career, and uh, it's going to be his most important one. And again, the action in this movie, just like the first one, is is highly entertaining, a lot of fun, and really great. I, I love that fight sequence um, in that uh, club, after he saves Simza, and then there's that great chase through the club, and and while he's do while he's fighting this guy, Watson's getting hammered and and betting and gambling, and um, it's just a great scene. Uh, we once again are it, he they make it playful, and Zimmer's music is excellent again. And then uh, they go to the the wedding, destroyed <laughs> in the car, and so hungover. The, the scene where uh, <laughs> Sherlock has the bagpipes players wake up Watson, his face his is face hysterical. is like. And, oh my uh, god! And he gets married to Mary, and hopefully Sherlock, this will convince uh, Moriarty not to have Watson involved with the plans. And uh, just to go quick on Hans Zimmer, real quick, somehow his score got better for this film. It's compared so to the good. First one, it's, it's epic. So good. It's fun, and I swear I know this by heart too. When he he worked extensively with Romani musicians to try and capture their voices in that score and the many uh, sounds of the gypsy cultures and the and it's it apparent in those like gypsy scenes those traveling scenes is this adds so much more culture to the film and it gives it such more flair and and a heartbeat because now we're traveling and we're getting to experience new sounds and new people and and i love the music involved there's a really cool documentary about it Uh, it's like a short documentary about it um online and check it out if you're interested so it's fascinating to see how he works 
Uh, and so, yeah, after the marriage, Holmes goes to finally meet Moriarty. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because uh, Moriarty and Holmes are very polite with one another. They they speak in, in kind of in code and they hint at things, but they not, they're not very outright with their speech. Holmes has come there to try to see if Moriarty would spare Watson now that he's pretty much out of the picture. And uh, they are very complimentary of one another. And in this moment, Sherlock also sees several clues which will be very vital to his uh, the end of the film. After uh, the conversation, Moriarty uh, rejects his question saying that uh, Watson and his new wife won't be spared. When two objects collide, there's a destruction of a collateral nature or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't outright say he's going to kill them, but he says he's going to pay them a visit or something. And so uh, clearly Sherlock has to do what he can to, to save Watson now. And this will, this is what sends him to the train when Mary and Watson are taking a train on their honeymoon. Yeah, the honeymoon train sequence is, is so fun. It's hysterical. And Sherlock is dressed up in, in the in the woman attire to try to... And the makeup. And the, the lipstick and everything to try to, to look like a woman on the train to get by. And then uh, he saves, basically, Mary by throwing her outside of the train. And we have just so much fun between Watson and Sherlock here where Watson's just trying to beat the crap and kill Sherlock because he just threw Mary out of a moving train. Did you just kill my new wife? Did you just kill my new (laughs) wife? I told you I timed it perfectly. (laughs) And so she obviously lands in that little lake and is saved by Mycroft who is also introduced in this film played by Stephen Fry who's perfect. He's a a delight in this this movie. He just added so much new comedy to the film and Stephen Fry is a great British actor. He's so funny and he actually does the audiobooks for one of the Harry Potter series which I highly recommend checking out if you like audiobooks because Stephen Fry does a phenomenal job at reading them. And this is another very fun, entertaining action sequence. And obviously, Sherlock being Sherlock, Sherlock had already established himself several steps ahead of the soldiers, and they eventually uh, get away. And um, now they're traveling to France to, to find Simza, and they f- do end up finding her, her gypsy outfit. But before this, there's a moment when on the ferry when Sherlock is holding Irene Adler's bloody handkerchief. And this is the first moment where they show um, Sherlock uh, ever like really emoting and in, in seeing a, a more um, vulnerable side to himself. And he, he throws the, the handkerchief into the water and then that's it. But also, but clearly uh, Irene's death has a, had a, a powerful inf- a impact on him. Which is what Moriarty was hoping it would to try to weaken his offenses and weaken his intellect somehow but I think Sherlock being Sherlock he has to put it out of his mind for now to like you said earlier the story he he doesn't use brain power on things that don't relate to his cases and Simsa they learn knows where this particular wine cellar they're looking for where uh, the the letter came from and she leads them to uh, uh, Paris where they do find the wine cellar and this was this is the headquarters of the organization that is making the bombs for Moriarty and the leader uh, has reveals that he's made a, a a deal with the devil, a deal with Moriarty, which is going to cost him his life in in favor of saving his family's life. And uh, before he can help them out any further, he, he kills himself, which was part of the deal with Moriarty. And then this is a actually a great moment because uh, Sherlock makes a mistake and he falsely identifies where the bomb is. He thinks that the bomb is at the opera because Moriarty purposely had them plant um, little structures and and designs that relate to the opera happening simultaneously. So it's a a false clue for Sherlock and Sherlock 
takes them to the opera, and when they go underneath the set of the stage, he finds just a, a chess piece, and Moriarty's looking at him with binoculars, and so Moriarty beat him in this moment, and then when they do finally just learn where the bomb is, it goes off, and it kills a room full of businessmen, but it, it, that wasn't the purpose of the attack. The the bombing hid the real assassination of one of these men, Meinhardt, who owned who owned a weapons and arms factory in Germany. Moriarty had him assassinated so that with his death, Moriarty is able to gain control of this man's gigantic weapons factory. Yeah, Moriarty has a new, uh, basically, main henchman. It's Colonel Sebastian Moran, played by Paul Anderson, who's infamous for playing Arthur Shelby on the, the Peaky Blinders. Arthur. Arthur. Tommy Shelby. Yeah, so, and he's actually really great in this film, and he's he's a real, he's an awesome character actor. I like him a lot. I love when I see him in films. And, and then after this, they travel to Germany, and they find Moriarty's uh, weapons factory, which is fully stocked with a huge arsenal, and Sherlock discovers his plan is to effectively create a new world war by pitting uh, countries against each other in order to create a demand for the supply that Moriarty owns. And then this is when uh, Sherlock gets captured by Moriarty. And we have an awesome scene between uh, home, I mean, between Watson and Moran, where Moran's an expert sharpshooter, sniper, and then Watson actually outsmarts him with a giant cannon and shoots him <laughs> off a tower. And then a really intense torture scene between Moriarty and Holmes, where Moriarty is trying to figure out where Holmes sent the telegram, uh, and it was end up being to his brother Mycroft. But really, Holmes wanted to get close to him, and that's why, even though physically he's, close, yeah, physically close to him, even though he's in a in in a hook and in an immense pain, he he purposely whispers in his ear so that he can get in close proximity to Moriarty for later on. And then what follows is after the tower collapses, Sherlock is uh, is rescued by Watson, and they escape the 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 factory with the other gypsies. And then we have an excellent foot chase, uh, very reminiscent of the foot chase in Deathly Hallows Part One. Um, but I think that Richie, being the stylish stylistic director, he is he created an, an a very unique and visually stunning set piece using a blend of incredibly high-speed cameras and practical effects blended with special effects. And I love this this chase scene, and obviously we have the giant cannon that... This is like the one problem I have with the movie where they blow the, the wall open so they can escape, and so they're running through the woods. And one of my favorite parts is the use of Snorri Cam, but in a visually effects way in post-production. So Snorri Cam has been infamously used in a ton of films like Mean Streets, Requiem for a Dream, The Hangover, Wolf of Wall Street. And this is where you basically literally mount a camera in front of an actor and the camera's right in front of their face. And it gives a really interesting perspective or shot. And like in The Hangover, it's when Ed Helms wakes up from The Hangover. Yeah. And then Requiem for a Dream, they do it on Jennifer Connelly. They do it on all the characters. Yeah, so, and so it's a really cool shot. And it's interesting, but it really only works for a couple takes. But Guy Ritchie achieves this effect in post-production. Um, and so that's one of his strengths as a visual effects director. And it, it offers a really cool element to this chase scene. And it's a lot of fun. And I think Guy Ritchie, again, highly stylized. This this artificial story cam is one of my favorite parts of the chase. Yeah, and it's just they shoot it wide and, and then they crop frame by frame so that the actor's head is in the center of the frame for every shot. So it makes it seem as though the camera is strapped to them from a distance. It's yeah, really it's, brilliant. It's something that he did, I think, in uh, Rock and Rolla. And then what's the other one he did with? With Jason Statham? Yeah. Revolver. And then this leads them to uh, going to the Peace Summit. 
And at the Peace Summit is going to be uh, a joining of the ambassadors, uh, presidents or rulers of a dozen countries. And it's a very important meeting. And uh, this is where Moriarty is going to carry out his assassination. So he's planning to assassinate a, a, a president so that it will cause a conflict between all the countries and cause the world war. And he's using Rene Sims's brother as the killer. And what we learned earlier on is that plastic surgeon, they have put the face of somebody else on Rene, which is why he writes that that uh, letter to Simza saying, um, remember my face because it's the last time you'll never see it again because he's had his face removed and replaced. And so he's going to ca carry out the assassination, impersonating someone else from a different country, which will start a world war. Well, before this, uh, they're, they're kind of just like preparing themselves in and Sherlock discovers a, a small breathing apparatus. It's Mycroft's personal oxygen supply, which I think he uses to get high. And uh, we'll, we'll see that later on in the film. But uh, what follows is a great sequence because at the at the uh, summit party, Sherlock literally just he, – he gives Watson the power of the situation. He tells him, you know my methods. I'm leaving it up to you to find out which person in this room is actually Rene to, and try to stop him. Because while Sherlock, while he's doing that, Sherlock is going to handle Moriarty. And so he invites Moriarty onto the porch outside. And they have a, a really fantastic scene of dialogue. And they play uh, an intense game of chess. Once again, we see the chess motif where uh, they are literally just like in the Summit um, Banquet Hall. The room is uh, designed to be a chess board. And there are pieces on the board. And... Uh, they and both Moriarty and Sherlock have pieces on the board in the situation, and we have this great mental back and forth between Sherlock and Moriarty. And this is again where you talk about earlier the analogy of the fisherman and the trout, where they both think they're the fisherman, and especially Moriarty thinks he's had the upper hand on Sherlock the whole time. But again, end of the film. This is where Sherlock reveals everything, and we learn that Sherlock has had the one up on Moriarty the entire story, except for the scene with the opera, and he has. He's literally been uh, following him and watching Moriarty for weeks. For months while he had been literally uh, spying on and following Moriarty, always in disguise, during one of Moriarty's lectures, Sherlock in disguise noticed that he had the small red book and then he kept seeing the red book showing up. And so he deduced that it's uh, vital to uh, Moriarty's carrying out his plans and his transactions. And so uh, Sherlock comes up with a plan of tr swapping Moriarty's red book with a blank one which he does during the torture scene when he's hooked and he's whispering into Moriarty's ear this is where he swaps the red book with the fake one which actually has the fun caricature inside of it and then he sent this to Mycroft and Mary and using the book and the code laced within it they're able to strip Moriarty of his entire fortune and so Sherlock reveals this to Moriarty to his surprise taking away any power Moriarty has in the world now and so Sherlock essentially has won Although Moriarty does say that he says that a new world war will come to happen eventually and he's still going to profit from it and he'll still uh, help try to make it happen. And so Sherlock understands that the only way to stop Moriarty is to kill him. And because he has such an injured, wounded shoulder, he has the deduction that he, will, he won't be able to fight Moriarty and win. He'll be defeated easily by Moriarty. So he decides to 
sacrifice himself and throw he and Moriarty over the porch ledge. Just like Sherlock has the scenes before he fights somebody where he deduces all the moves ahead of time and figures out figures out his plans of offense and defense, Moriarty butts in inside his head and does the same thing, and they both kind of do this mental gymnastics, and they both figure out that Moriarty would win a fight between the two of them. It's like playing chess mentally. Yeah, they were so doing it earlier. Because they're such equals... Moriarty and Sherlock that Sherlock understands that the only way that he can defeat him is to put his life on the line and risk death himself by taking him over the ledge at the summit. And this is this is what happens in the book in the final problem. They both fall over the Reichenbach Falls and um Watson witnesses them going over the ledge and um it's a very sad next few minutes of the film where um they have Sherlock's funeral and Watson is clearly devastated by the loss of his, his very good friend. And um, it's very it's very sad. And then we cut to Watson at home, and he's finishing up the writing of this final story, the final problem. And then um, he writes the end on the note, but then he receives a package, and inside the package is Mycroft's oxygen-breathing apparatus, which he finds very curious, and he leaves the room and asking who exactly delivered this package. And then Sherlock Holmes is right there hiding in his urban attire. And <laughs> urban then he, camouflage. And then he changes the period to a question mark. I think this is a fantastic movie. Uh, it's loyal to the books while also telling its own style and its own story. And I think it's better than the first one. And it's an absolutely fantastic film. I agree. These are both phenomenal movies. Guy Ritchie's one of the best directors working. And I can't wait to talk about him in more episodes. And thank you so much for listening to episode 46 of Raiders of Lost podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube for the full video versions of the episode so you can see our our mugs on camera and our cool <laughs> set and everything. Follow us and hit the notification bell on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit us up on Patreon and support us. Send us some DMs. Follow us on TikTok. We really appreciate it. All the support. Thanks for tuning in wherever you are around the world. Take care, everyone.